Jacob Sperlis. I'm Justin. And I'm Kerry. All right, Kerry, we are back here. Uh, we're taking a little break from the normal routine. Uh, this time we're going to talk about uh, some uh, listener questions and some comments we've, we've, we've gotten in response to uh, the Facebook post uh, on the uh, Paperless Fairless Facebook page. It's gone live uh, recently. Yeah, thanks to everybody who sent in any comments, questions, uh, or anything else. And uh, for all the likes we've gotten, it's really appreciated. Yes, yes. So, uh, Kerry, you want to just kick us off with either a question or a comment that we got uh, in response? Yeah, yeah. Um, the first one is a comment. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, said, uh, and I'll just read it verbatim, I play this game with myself during each episode. I call it, what is Carrie eating? I pretend I'll win a free t-shirt if I can guess. My guess for paper number two is almonds. Well, uh, good listener, uh, it was actually pretzels, but it was a great guess. Yes. Uh, <laughs> one thing we have to acknowledge on our some of our earlier episodes is, uh, you know, Justin and I, in addition to wanting to do this as something that, that we would ourselves learn a lot from and hopefully, uh, you know, uh, break down the Federalist Papers for others is the fact that, uh, oh, we're just going to relax, hang out, have a good time, have some snacks and drinks while doing it. But, not, uh, what says a good time, like talking about the Federalist Papers? I mean, you know, uh, when I, when very I think, few things, very when few I, things. you know, think good time, obviously that comes right to the forefront, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So, exactly. Um, the Federalist Papers and some, uh, a nice uh, cold beer and some pretzels. That uh, that's that's definitely a good time. Exactly. But in trying to get uh, great audio quality for everyone, uh, you know, we I got uh, we got uh, you know some uh, nicer microphones and set them up and everything. Not uh, really thinking too much about uh, how it puts yeah. every, every little sound. I mean, All I did not realize that uh, my chip in pretzel eating was going to be such a feature of the podcast early on. So going yeah. forward. There will be no snacks in the uh, recording area, but yes. uh, you know we can't we can't de snack those early episodes. Likewise, but, uh, uh, I've I've had to try to stop uh, touching or or pounding on the on the tabletop surface. Um, I have a tendency to, to tap or rap on the uh, edge of the desk when I'm trying to make a point. Uh, apparently, well, um, your cruise shop like qualities can be charming at times when it's yes. when it's warm. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but I think those were some of the loud booms uh, that were picked up and not. I mean, I edited out as many as I could, but there were some that were just came right in the middle of a sentence and you know would not make any sense if I cut them out. So apologies. Hey, it wouldn't be an interesting podcast if we didn't feel passionately about it. Exactly. And uh, you, you had a passionate point. And so. it, what better way to drive it home than with. Uh, the shoe on the desktop. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, let's see. Do we have any questions you want to take off? Yeah. Um, the uh, the first question we got, and uh, it's a little bit of a long one, but I'll, you know, I'll read it verbatim. Uh, it said, uh, one of our listeners asked, I had a question come to mind after listening to episode three, uh, though it might be relevant for the duration, I imagine. In the third episode, you guys were talking about how both the Federalists and Anti-Federalists were both in agreement that what they were doing was really an important thing. It just made me think, did they really think that, or was it just a persuasion tactic? In retrospect, of course, it was important that they were just trying to get everyone to think that this was an incredibly important decision that everyone's future depends on, or just to get people interested in what they were talking about. I think I think about how so many issues are framed nowadays in politics with inflammatory and absolute, absolutist language, Simply as a method to get people to vote the way you want them to, want them to. Thoughts? And that's an interesting question. Is you know, going back to episode three to encapsulate really quick. You know, I think one of the things we kept we're saying then is 
that you know the, the Federalists and Anti-Federalists strongly disagreed with each other about how America should be governed going forward. But both of them, uh, in addition to sharing sort of a common intellectual heritage regarding uh, the ideas they thought were important ideas as far as uh, the Enlightenment, they also both really uh, felt that it was very important and what they were doing was something of great importance, uh, not just for themselves, for their states, or even for the country, but for all of humanity to establish this new way forward. I'll let you take the first crack at that, Justin. That wouldn't address it to either one of us particularly, unlike that chip comment or almonds comment. Well, uh, well, I can I can get while you're while you're uh, considering real quick. I can yeah. give a really quick uh, con- contrast. Uh, I can't remember where I heard this. Maybe it was one of my college uh, classes back in the day, but it was an interesting point, which was that politics doesn't learn the lesson that the private sector knows really well, which is that uh, you never, for example, see an airline advertising so much against other airlines' safety records. They don't say, oh, this airline crashes a lot more than us. Don't ride them or you'll die. Ride with us. <laughs> they'll, they'll, war on, they'll do advertisements on prices, but not like on safety. Likewise, you won't see uh, restaurants talking about the other guy's restaurant being, you know, making you sick or something like that. And the reason for that is that they've done research, psychological research, and found that, like, when you do those kind of scorched earth campaigns, you know, when you go negative, the net result there is, yes, in the short run, you know, the airline that's touting its better safety record and the other one, you know, will do better than the other one was, you know, being blasted for having a bad safety record, bad crash record. Some, you know, same way was the restaurant with a better food safety record. But over the long term, it destroy it will just the the long term effect is that everyone doesn't like flying as much because they think it's dangerous. Everyone yeah. is more afraid to eat their eat out because they're afraid they're going to get sick. Um, politics, unfortunately, is not like that. Maybe it, it was back in those days where you know you didn't where you saw them warring about ideas, but they all agreed that what they were doing was important. They weren't saying that public service or public thought. Um, itself, or you know, really caring deeply about government is a bad thing. You shouldn't think hard about. It. They're just saying that they disagreed. They didn't go down the road that you know. I think the, the questioner sort of hints at that. Uh, you know, nowadays it's scorched earth. Yeah. It's not just that the other side is wrong on their ideas. They're bad people. They're not real yeah. Americans. Uh, they're you know, they're not just disagreeing. They you know, might be racist, anti-woman, etc. You go straight for the extreme. You don't just say we disagree on this. Yeah. Although, you know, keep in mind that Burr shot Hamilton at some point. So... <laughs> so but he just shot him. He didn't talk about it. That's true. You're right. He didn't talk about him. He and just he went out and shot him. Yeah. He didn't shoot him because it was a, you know, he thought it was a bad American. They had other they had other issues. Oh, it was mainly about found, yeah. felt that Hamilton was blocking his career. Exactly. So, um... I mean, I was sitting here thinking about how much more civil they were, but, um, you know, they shot each other then. And I guess, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, Cheney shot somebody in the face not too long ago, too. So maybe it's just a common practice. Also, not American. a political disagreement. That was a duck face disagreement. <laughs> I know. I but I just meant as far as, pez, I don't know, as far as, it vice, was a bird. It was vice, a bird. Yes, it was. I just was tongue in cheek about vice presidents shooting uh, other people while in office. <laughs> you know? Yes. So, yes. My initial thought here when reading this was, 
uh, both sides were very impassioned and they both thought that their point of view was very important uh, and that they were both very committed to it. But then I, I thought back to what we were talking about in Fairless Number 9, where Hamilton, although he was making his case, uh, had that kind of throwaway reference to the idea that, look, if this all falls apart, you know, the states are still going to exist. The states are still going to be states. And that almost, in my mind, sort of kind of hints at maybe he's not quite so impassioned. I mean, maybe, yes, he wants to see it get passed, but he had some conflicts, with uh, some pretty big conflicts with the way the Constitution was written. I mean, he wasn't a fan of the way some things shook out. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, is he saying there or is he hinting at this uh, sort of subconscious thought of, look, if this all blows up, you know, we're all still going to be all the states. New York is still going to be New York. You know, Virginia is mm -hmm. still going to be Virginia and the world's not going to end. And so I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Do you really think they were so committed uh, or or were they just trying to get people to cast their lot with them to try to win the argument? Well, I, I think it, for me, I think the best way of answering this question is one, uh, to expand in the scope beyond just the particular federalists and anti-federalists of the time, but you know, all the founding fathers and then all of our great leaders in general. And then also answer it with a question instead of an answer, which is that what would be the most convincing way to show that these, uh, you know, these founding fathers and then some of our great leaders through time, you know, really, you know, put their money where their mouth is. You know, they really showed their, they really showed that they cared and they just weren't acting that way. Well, it was more than empty propaganda. And to me, it comes down to, you know, anyone can say words, you know, anyone can say they care more about the country than anyone else, that they're the most authentic and the most right about what it is to be American. And, you know, they value it more heavily than anyone else. But I think what is telling with uh, our founding fathers and then again, some of our great historical leaders is not their words, but their actions. Uh, you look at someone like George Washington, you know, he basically, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, some of our most, most noted presidents. Um, and then what each of them have in common is that each of them pretty much expended themselves in almost the most literal sense of the word, trying to serve the country. I mean, George Washington, from the time he was a very young man fighting in the, you know, the French and Indian Wars, until he served out his, his presidency and didn't live very long after leaving it, you know, it's literally true what he he said to his troops once was that he's you know grown old he grew old and blind in the service of his country. He, you know, he never really had much of a time for his own domestic tranquility and happiness. He didn't really have time to have kids of his own. Um, you know, similarly, Abraham Lincoln, you know, he came into and, and uh, was literally gave his life and, you know, was been assassinated. Uh, his children died in living in Washington, D.C., which was a, you know, a pretty nasty place to live, very disease-ridden and filthy at the time. FDR, from the stress and pressures of both the Depression and World War II, um, you know, spent himself. He died in office. Um, and to me, that's a lot more convincing than anything anyone would say. And I think what ties all of them together and, again, all of our, our great leaders together is that this concept that, can't, you know, of, of something that's been called civic religion, you know, it's, it's something our founding fathers were very big into. 
when they use all this uh, high, you know, this uh, elevated language about the importance of what they were doing. You know, they all believe that that uh, creating a better civilization and better society and a better way of governing had an almost religious significance for them. And there's multiple meanings, and you know, in social science circles of civic religion, because another meaning is just say, you know, to say, oh, this is a country of God, a special chosen country of God. That's not the way I'm meaning to express here. I'm, what I'm talking about is the founding fathers had this very strong idea that there was something almost sacred and holy to what they were doing, not dedicated to any one particular God, but it was so important, it was sacred. And we, we all believe it to an extent because other, because look at how, look at how we treat the things associated with that. I mean, where is, where do we have our founding documents enshrined in vacuum sealed glass in the granite yeah. temple? Yeah. Uh, we, it, you know, during our, most troubling hours, you know, we've, we have tied ourselves closely to that rhetoric and imagery and reality of the civic religion of there's something almost, you know, almost sacred, holy and, and religious and divine about American values and institutions. Uh, and, you know, so the question comes down to, um, to me, not if they really thought it was really that important. Because to me, I think it's a, they certainly did, not just by their words, but by their actions. But do we still think it's so? I mean, to, do we still feel it's sacred today? And if yes, how do, why do we, how are we still worthy of saying yes? And if no, why do we stop? So that's my feelings on it, the civic well, religion aspect that's and the, the actions. That's interesting then, because I think then that begs the question of, you know, you look at the sacrifices and the things that the founding generations, maybe subsequent generations did in service to their and dedication to that concept of civic religion. And what are we doing now? How are we keeping mm-hmm. true to those ideals and to that faith? And are we at times, you know, have we lost the path? Have we, uh, you know, uh, or are we just we... transition to the other definition of civic religion? Well, I don't know. I mean, are we are we are we doing things that would uh, today that would seem to to violate the faith? Is what I'm saying. It's a good question because you know back in the time of founding fathers, you, you know, the more you look at, it, the more you learn. They didn't have one unified thought about how it should be governed. They argued intensely. Yeah. They they each thought the other one was going to destroy the country. Yeah, you know, the ones <laughs> of the opposite view. Um, and one of the reasons they fought so hard was because they cared so much. So to the extent that the fighting is so hard between individuals uh, and factions uh, today, and it's you know dedicated, uh, it's motivated by sincere patriotism and feeling that the stakes are so high, maybe it's not you know, a concern. But it's true. It's true is, but is that the motivation? I, I think... I would agree that passions run just as hotly today as maybe they ever have at any other point. Um, I guess where the dust settled once the Federalists went out and the Constitution was adopted and, you know, uh, certain. And I guess this gets to this gets to a, a point that not to get too far off. I guess what I was trying to, to, to kind of to dance around, I'll be a little more direct. You know, the, oftentimes we think of the constitution as an ideal or a set of principles that 
when we try to we we try to live up to it and I, I touched mm-hmm. I touched on this a bit when we were talking about uh, Rumsfeld versus Hamdi uh, uh, I'm sorry Rumsfeld versus Padilla that case a couple episodes ago yeah I remember that and mm-hmm. and and my uh, uh, criminal uh, procedure professor was talking about well you know in times of war you know sometimes we we don't always live up to our ideals and our constitution but I I often think back to what my constitutional law professor said that you know in in many ways the constitution is not geared or or framed in the sense of a set of ideals or privileges that we try to aspire to but instead really the constitution sets a floor it's a bare minimum you know, on many things especially when it comes to individual liberties that mm-hmm. uh that the government shall not you know do certain things and and cannot go below it's a baseline uh, guarantee that is supposed to exist for all uh citizens uh of the country mm-hmm. uh and so then this you know quick example Carrie, I'm sure you're familiar with the, you know, the concept of a driver's license, right? A driver's license is a privilege; it's not a right. Uh, I'm familiar with the concept okay. of a driver's license. <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, the, con- the, the use of, usage of a driver's license as an example of where that is a privilege that is that is granted to you uh, by the government, uh, and the government can take it away um, from you. Uh, the idea of the constitutional rights. Are you saying that the other constitutional rights are similarly given by the government? No, no, that they're not. That the constitutional rights are things that are supposed to be um, uh, untouchable um, in in many ways. And that they are are not a privilege like a driver's license. They are a guarantee, uh, a birthright, a... um, something that is supposed to be much they're almost more. like inalienable rights almost yeah resolute uh would be the word <laughs> i was going to say um and so that's and that's the difference is where where i think a lot of times we think of the constitution as is oh it's this living a, a, a common thing that is brought up is it oh it's a very living breathing document it's supposed to change with the times it's not supposed to be set in stone and while that is true the interesting thing you have to take that in context is that so it has a very low modification rate compared to like mm-hmm. You know, when you think state of state constitutions, state which constitutions, all the time, and in, in many ways, state constitutions are just another body of law, almost like uh, a statutory law for the state. I mean, they, they get so muddled and they're changing and shifting all the time that you don't know where your your bedrock is. And the idea with the U.S. Constitution is it's supposed to be that bedrock, and it's it changes, it can change, but they made it so difficult to change was that, so as to help preserve the base fundamental rights that are guaranteed to the people and that is the difference between like privilege versus right and you know here uh, yes they're very passionate i'm sorry I, I don't know exactly how i got off on this tangent <laughs> i apologize but um I, I i do think that they were that they were both very committed um and i was you know uh, it was just a question made me think of what we talked about or uh, Hamilton had kind of mentioned about in Federalist number nine about hey if this doesn't work the states are still going to exist but I, I don't I don't doubt the uh, the veracity that both sides felt for their for their policy that they were arguing at the time um, and I think you do make a good point that they didn't go total scorched earth I mean no one nowhere so far in the Federalist papers have they said you know the anti-federalists are scum you know they're not making personal attacks when they're making this this public relations campaign against the anti-federalists uh unlike what we see today in modern politics where you know um you know the other side you know has the mark of the beast on him if you believe if you believe whatever political <laughs> ad you're you happen to be listening to you know um so uh the tone is definitely different uh although the passions are probably just as just as hot um that's a good point in that yeah. 
maybe the reason they felt so strongly about a, getting a fixed definition and understanding of the Constitution is to set – they knew that each side felt so strongly about what they were arguing that the Constitution was going to be sort of a cross between ground, rule, ground rules and glue that you know established the process by which the great debate would be held. And it held the states together, you know, when in the process of the debate. And I think it was, uh, I guess we could check when we get there. I think the, the Federalist Papers recognized that. I think it was Federalist Paper 49 that mm-hmm. talked about, well, maybe one of the things that will um, make it easier to bring stability to the country um, and to allow our debates to, uh, you know, flourish while allowing for change is sort of enshrining the Constitution as this revered document. Where, you know, okay, even when we're fighting about a lot of things, there's certain things that we can agree on. I mean, that's a, a great contrast to, for example, the, the French democracy, which has had a lot of different, you know, what are they on, their 100th Republic right now? <laughs> they have had many different, you know, they have, a, have had a number of different constitutions and governments. And, you know, they're all democratic, but, you know, there's been a lot of change with yeah. the French government. You know, it's not, you know, the French constitution is not the same as far as enshrinement of the American. Yeah, I agree. So I, I think we probably hit that one pretty well. That question. Um, there's a. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to the next question unless you had something other. Sure. Some other thought. Um, the next one was: uh, Is Hamilton overrated and Adams underrated? And a little bit more here. Uh, the question as it as it was written. Uh, states, I remind you that this one, uh, this particular question, had some um, foul language in it. Oh, yeah. So well, we're gonna have to. Uh, gonna have to self-censor as you're i didn't want you to run across that and uh get us pulled but from itunes or anything so, okay all right so, um place the language as you read okay i'll try to come up with something <laughs> thanks <laughs> uh so it says reads as follows uh i was recently at a party and a guest commented that hamilton is completely overrated and was in fact a huge money-grubbing uh donkey uh all right and the person also stated (laughs) (laughs) the person also stated that adams is completely underappreciated opinions uh was was how i wrote it first of all very insightful question second of all i can't justice and i cannot condone the use of potty language we're both very uh, refined individuals (laughs) and uh when i read this question quite frankly justin it gave me a, I had a slight case of the vapors. I had to get to my fainting couch uh, to cover for about five minutes before I could really start my analysis of it. But that being the case, good question. Yeah. Do you have anything on the merits once you were able to overcome your shock at the language? <laughs> Is Hamilton overrated? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I just. It's sort of an odd juxtaposition of Hamilton yeah. versus Adams because. The two of them weren't really set in hard opposition to each other yeah. in the same way as other founding fathers. You know, When I think of Hamilton's main adversary, um, I think more of Jefferson. You know, Jefferson mm-hmm. sort of became the leader of the anti-federalist movement of small government, yeah. small land farmers, you know, power to the individuals and the little guy in the states and not yeah. the federal government. Hamilton was the big government guy. Adams was, in a way, as far as governmental policy, Adams was sort of a lighter, more modern version of Hamilton. But I don't, I guess I don't take this as being so much a critique about what their positions were, but maybe about, you know, Hamilton's got his own musical now, he's ultra popular, 
is you know when they're when the uh, the mint I think talked about whether they're going to replace him on uh, currency. Yeah. He had a big fan following that uh, you know showed their outrage. Where if he's being talked about right now, but Adams is not. I think that's what it focuses on. You know, Hamilton helped establish. I mean, he set up the treasury, right? I mean, he was the first secretary of the treasury. That is correct. That's um, why I was wondering in the context he, of using money grubbing jerk he, in. He argued. He argued in favor of having at least some level. Treasury, you have to be a money grubber. Yeah, and and he, if I if I remember correctly, and maybe I'm wrong, but my my memory serves me, he argued that some level of national debt is good, so that because then everyone's vested together in sort of this common undertaking. Um, I don't know that he would, I'm assuming he would be against runaway deficits, but uh, just a certain level of shared collective uh, debt bound uh, all the states together in a way um, that was unique. And so I thought he set up a bank in New York too. Um, so maybe... He was a big advocate of a national bank for yeah. America. That okay. was something he really championed. So uh, given that, you know, I, and maybe the comment steered towards just Hamilton's just overall money policy. You know, I mean, what do you what do you just, just leave Adams out on the side of it? I mean, was Hamilton money grubbing? Money grubbing? <laughs> you know? Well, I, I mean, mean, yes, but is a bad thing? I mean, you know? I think I get to split this into two. I mean, aren't we all capitalists? In, in his thing? official <laughs> capacity, in his official capacity, yes, of course he was. I mean, we've talked a lot about the fact that. You know, one of the main things he was motivated by in trying to get behind the Constitution is the U.S. government owed all – they couldn't even pay their own soldiers. You know, yeah. they, owed all, they owed all their veterans a bunch of money. They couldn't pay it. They couldn't pay their debts. He felt like, you know, look, at the bare minimum, you got to pay your – got to pay your debts or we're going to be in real trouble. So, yeah, yeah but he spent a lot of time, effort, and energy to – Try to set up tariffs or try to set up, uh, you know, uh, a tax regime to get money to pay America's debts, and you know that was a, a continuous thing. From you know, again, when he was when he mm-hmm. was put in Washington's cabinet and headed up the Treasury, you know, it was his job. It was his job to fund the U.S. government, and nobody. You know, we've talked about before the states weren't you know exactly sending in donations in any time or fashion. It's a dirty. Mm-hmm. Everybody hates the tax guy, of course. Everybody hates the IRS, but it's a job that has to be done. If you're, I mean, if you're going to have a strong central government, you know, it's got to eat. It's got to have money to pay the bills. And so, yeah. on that sense, yes, he was money grubbing in the same way that the IRS is. Yeah. But if it's their job, how much are you going to hold it against him? I mean, he was the Secretary of the Treasury. He established the job too. to make sure there was money to pay for things that need to be done. I, you know, did he go too far? Matter of debate. I'm gonna but, I'm gonna say this too. You know, most of these guys. I mean, a lot of the founding fathers are politicians, right? So, I mean, what politician do you know that's a wallflower that sits there and is is a wilting a wilting shadow in the corner in a corner of a crowded room? None of them. If you're going to be successful in politics, you own the room. You're you're very. Um, um, see, I'm gonna disagree with you know, a bit there, though. I. I'm I'm just speculating that none of the, that these guys did not have a hard time communicating. You know, no, they, I agree with you on that. That they and, did not have a hard time. Communicating. You know, and, and that they didn't. You know, they were not a wilting flower in the corner that needed to be drawn out. I mean, if they wanted to get their point across, they got it across. And uh, one way or the other, know. yes, but maybe not in the same way. And and maybe no. that I'm I'm going to psychoanalyze this uh, person the questioner heard from. 
I'm going. I think this is one of the oldest conflicts of all times, which is introverts versus extroverts. I'm guessing that this this individual that was overheard the party was an introverted person more. And in that context, it's an easier to understand thing because Hamilton, you know, was well known to be a guy who was very. He was not soft spoken. Yeah. He he was very much uh, very open and aggressive in pushing his agenda, and you know, uh, to the point of. You know, he was definitely not a wallflower. Yeah. He was somebody who was out there speaking uh, very strongly about whatever he wanted to do, and he didn't hold back. And, you know, that's why I think that he became the leader of the Federalist Movement, and I think it's why Jefferson similarly became the leader of the Anti-Federalist Movement. They were both really extroverted, open, mm-hmm. gregarious, and aggressive conversationalists. And I think, by contrast, you can compare Adam. You know, Adams communicated well in writing. But he's not known. He, when you think about Adams, uh, you don't think about him the same way as being, oh, this is a guy who's going out there shouting his opinions and you know shouting people down and aggressively pushing his point. But I think a better comparison for our purpose is really uh, Madison, actually, because you can do a bit better, easier comparison with uh, Madison and Hamilton, even though they're on the same side. You know, Hamilton's the guy who, you know, he's like the same thing now where. People will go and be purposely a little bit controversial or purposely go a little bit over the line to create publicity and to create buzz and to create excitement. That was Hamilton. You know, that, there's a reason why the, the musical is Hamilton and it's not Madison. Or John you know, Adams, right? <laughs> Madison, and one of the, Madison, even his papers are sometimes more excited, but, and we're going to get into it next, uh, next episode with 10. Madison is more moderate, more measured, less aggressive. And so it's not as, you know, exciting, doesn't do as much buzz, but, you know, it's really uh, interesting reading. And, yeah. and that, Madison fulfilled almost the exact same role in the Declaration of Independence with Jefferson. You know, Jefferson always, when you think of Declaration of Independence, who wrote it and everything, it's always Jefferson, Jefferson, Jefferson. But, you know, Madison, once again, he's the behind-the-scenes guy who worked heavily with Jefferson to draft it, but, you know, Jefferson was from Virginia, and Jefferson had that really interesting, aggressive personality that people were just drawn to, like Moss the Flame. Mm-hmm. And so Hamilton, I mean, Hamilton uh, Jefferson versus Adams and uh, Madison, uh, those things are always going to happen. You're always going to have your individuals and your leaders who, you know, are better people people, you know, for lack yeah. of a better word. You know, whereas Adams and Madison were better probably in writing and, and not so magnetic with their personalities. That doesn't make one better than the other, but they each had their contributions. Okay. And, but I wouldn't say that Adams is completely left out of history. I mean, he's had uh, he's been covered pretty heavily by history. He had a nice uh, McCullough book about him. He's got a, he had a movie hey, about him. We're talking about him on a podcast. I mean, the guy's just exactly. just perpetual, you know. <laughs> he just doesn't have a musical. That's but, true. Well, hey. would he want a musical? Was he a musical kind of guy? I don't I know. Don't think he was, I think he'd like the documentary format a lot better than music. Maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe a spoken yeah. word reading at best about his spoken. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The one um, last point though, as far as money grubbing in his personal life, or as far as like. In a non-official capacity, yeah. if he was trying to, you know, if everything he did was to gather not so much money but personal power, ambition, you know, mm-hmm. the, he didn't do anything for the country as a whole, but more for himself. 
I don't agree with that, but the extent that he might have prioritized his ambition throughout his life, as well as the country, mm-hmm. if you're going to be critical of that, you can't stop at Hamilton. Every single one of the founding fathers generally did not see a conflict between having personal ambition and wanting to distinguish yourself yeah. and the good of the country. I mean, yeah. Washington is very well known for consciously studying great biographies when he was growing up and saying, I want to be like one of these great men. Yes, that's you know, right. He was a great founding father, but he was also calculating as well. And that doesn't take away from it. It was a good thing yeah. for him. Maybe, maybe that's – you're crystallizing, I think, maybe what I was trying to say. When I was talking about these guys weren't wallflowers, I mean they were all ambitious. They all had yeah. drive and they weren't I – mean, I don't know how you can be a person that has that much ambition, as much drive as these guys had and not upset some people along the way. And in doing so, exactly. you'll, you can look back and you will find people that they stepped on their toes and, and rubbed the wrong way and they, they would tell you, oh – you know, Hamilton's a jerk. You know, I'm sure someone has thought that at some point. <laughs> okay. But it yeah, if you're not making somebody yeah. angry, double down. Yeah. Because you're not doing enough. There you go. So, um, well, I think we've covered that short question. Uh, all right. in, in detail, uh, uh, before, um, I want to jump in with one, uh, the uh, longstanding, uh, topic on this podcast, which is what happened to John oh, Jay? Yeah. What happened to John Jay? And I, I went on and on and on about that. Um, for those who don't know, you know, I was talking about what happened to John Jay, and he wrote uh, Federalist Papers 2, 3, 4, and 5, number 5 being published on November 10, 1787. And then he comes back for number 65 being published on March 7, 1788. And so my question was, you know, what happened to John Jay in the interim, and why did he only publish uh, five total papers out of the yeah, entire care project? Care and so that's why I was my, my questions. And along the ways, we talked about the. Uh, uh, the doctor's riot that happened in April 1788 and how he had su- suffered some severe head trauma. Uh, yeah, as, rock to the head. Well, brick to the head or rock to the head? Uh, that, that, that amount of detail varies based on what I read. Some people said rock, other people said brick. to the head, either way. Either way, it's cranial trauma. And, the, yes. uh, right? and so I said, okay, you know, I get why he kind of checked out past that date in April 1788. You know, he was suffering and having to the health issues. So what, you know, kind of what happened to him in the interim was the longstanding sort of question. Um, well, I, I found in a biography of John Jay, uh, written by, uh, Walter Starr, S T A H R. Um, mm-hmm. and it suggests, or what well, he states in there that along the time that Madison publishes his first paper, which is, uh, November 29th, 1787, Okay. Um, which is number 10, uh, that we're yes. about ready to do, that at that yes. point, uh, John Jay fell ill. And ah. uh, and he was ill for quite some time. Um, but that... Guy can't, just can't catch a break. So, you know, he had, a, he had a rough six months there. But so it sounds... And he notes, though, that this is often given the is, is the explanation as to why uh, Jay contributes so little to the, to the Federalist cause. Uh, but that... Um, he was again able to handle his his workload in February of 1788, uh, coming back and being the Secretary of Foreign Affairs. So he was up and about by February, okay. Uh, but the author here suggests that by the time he gets back on his feet and recovers from whatever illness afflicted him from you know November, December into January of yeah. 1788, that by that point Hamilton and Madison had the task of the Federalist Papers well at hand. Uh, 
and he decided to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to focus on some other other things that he needed to be focused on because he figured these that two guys. That for Jay. It's these like two guys Madison was the backup quarterback who came in and took his job. These two guys have it down, uh, and so then he contributes the one in the early March of 1788, but then he gets hit in the head with the brick and or stone in the doctor's right in April of 1788. Uh, Just wasn't meant to be, I so, guess. Uh, he had a lot of illness and a lot of personal injury uh, along the way. So um, that's that's the best answer that I have come up with thus far as to where did John Jay, what happened to him. And, um, you know. I got to admit to some degree of sadness that he didn't come back. One of my favorite things from his articles is the rivers and hams that unite us. And I was <laughs> looking forward to you know, similar the author better in the future. I, the, I uh, Mr. Realize Mr. I've been robbed. Mr. Starr uh, points out that that he says, you know, Jay knew well that the Americans were descended from various ancestors and practices, various religions, but his purpose was not uh, dis- uh, description but persuasion. And he was using religions and revolutionary images to persuade reluctant voters. And that was in uh, what he wrote when talking about the quote that you were just mentioning from Federalist Number Two about uh, this. Jay's uh, parent um, uh, arguments that uh, we're all one and the same, and that uh, the author here, or the, uh, the biographer of, of Jay, Mr. Starr, is suggesting that deep down Jay really knew that wasn't truly the case, but he was trying to persuade people to a cause, and that's why he took that position. So, um, Well, that was my, I, I argued similar to what the yeah. Star Report argument so, was, and uh, I think I, I think you're the one who probably owes Mr. Jay an apology after uh, <laughs> really coming down on him and just... Oh, I don't know. pretty harsh terms, I remember, being uh, thrown about, bandaged about. Well, uh, if there's any John Jay descendants out there looking to bring a libel or slander lawsuit, then I just want to make clear that Justin was the one who was uh, characterizing Jay's arguments a certain way. Okay. I have nothing but regard for the guy. (laughs) Past, present, future. I was I was just you know questioning what happened to him in the interim, and now I I seem to have answered that question uh, at least uh, to a certain degree, um, which in some ways What's is answered. Well uh, done, sir. As the uh, the uh, the point of doing all of this is to kind of del- dive in and find the little nuanced things here or there, and and to learn as we go, um, which then brings us to I think we had another question here. Um, most cited papers. Most cited papers. What parts of the yeah. What parts of the Federalist Papers are most commonly referenced by politicians, media, etc.? Are they used accurately or taken out of context? And to that one, that really cuts at the uh, the original idea. I think we talked about on the intro, one of the intro episodes, which was, you know, after the most recent presidential election, uh, there was a lot of um, a debate about what the Electoral College would do during that. You know, the weeks long news cycle, there was a, a often quoted and and. Uh, Everybody all of a sudden was a uh, – it looks like uh, number 68 uh, deals with it. Yep. But the um, it, it, that section of the, the one Fairless paper was being quoted a lot. Uh, I don't know if it was misquoted, but my thought was this can't possibly be all there is on this one particular subject. Is just a couple paragraphs of the quoting from this one Fairless paper. And then it got me again thinking about how, you know, just I, I hadn't ever really gone through them all in any kind of real detail. Uh, and – in my, this is gonna be so. This will be an ongoing question we're answering, honestly, throughout the yeah, the, uh, the eighty-five we're reviewing. It is, and and you know the goal was to better understand the work as a whole and not just rely upon being told what certain portions mean. And as a result, that's that's where we're at. We've got through the first nine. Uh, it's it's an ongoing question. Uh, I think numbers ten and uh, 
which we're about ready to do, so that's a big one. And number 51. Yeah, 10 is really one of the biggest yeah. ones as far as what's been one that's been cited a lot. And uh, 51, I think, also is another one that talks about checks and balances in the uh, Constitution. Separation powers. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's another big one that talks about. Uh, and you know, obviously then 68 was, was – uh, uh, quite popular uh, recently um, due, yeah. to the, due to the conversation about the electors and electoral college and how it's supposed to work. So uh, those are the three that I, I know of that tend to hit the news a lot or have hit the news a lot recently. Um, I, I don't know that anything has necessarily been misquoted. Uh, just I, did, I don't think it's misquoted you know, so much as miscontextualized. And that's, I think, possible. was the concern was I was sitting there listening to other people tell me what this portion of number 68 meant and what I should think of it. And I decided that you know what? I don't know if I'm going to be necessarily want to fully trust the people that are telling me this. And I decided I wanted to delve in deeper and to understand it and go straight to the horse's mouth, so to speak, and try to understand things. So uh, that's that's the point of all of this. Uh, and if for those, oh, great. that's a nice you know, segue there. You know, I I would agree with you. I you know, I mean, the ones you mentioned uh, were all important. The other ones I think that people talk about a lot. Uh, you know, is 32 regarding the role the you know the complementary and sometimes conflicting roles of uh, federal and state taxation, uh, you know, number 42 regarding uh, foreign and interstate commerce. Um, 44 it, oh, wait, wait, on, wait, wait, wait. There's one on interstate commerce? I, I mean, yes. that's just... I guess Put an I, answer by that when we'll get to it. Well, I just... The only reason I, I, I point that one out is because, you know, any more... Uh, so so uh, let me flesh this out. Obviously, uh, the, the Constitution is supposed to grant – Congress is only supposed to act under specific enumerated powers that are granted to it by the Constitution. Uh, and it carry as you exactly. know, being an attorney. Um, and that also the modern practice from Congress is to shoehorn everything that they do – well, not everything, but a large portion of what they do through the, um, uh, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution and say, oh, well, it's because this – particular product or thing moves in and amongst the several states we have the it's ability a very busy clause to legislate yes. it is it is abused is what it is and so that's interesting i'll be interested to see what the uh, federalists say about um interstate commerce and compared to what maybe some of the modern interpretation you know that will be an interesting one to read hmm. 42 always pops up uh, in interesting and unexpected places not only in regards to interstate commerce itself but uh you know, we'll talk about when we get there. That's uh, had a role in the Dred Scott decision, which you wouldn't necessarily okay. expect based on the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, forty-four talks about the uh, role of this. You know, the powers versus limitations of the federal government in regard to states. And then uh, seventy-eight to eighty-one gives me my larger point about the papers because seventy-eight he talks about uh, gives the giveth to the the courts. Talks about the power of judicial review and whatnot. Eighty-one takes away. By warning about the dangers of judicial activism, and uh, I think that takes me to my larger point about these uh, papers, in that it's hard to tell sometimes when they are being miscited or misquoted or taken out of context, because in a way, the Federalist Papers sometimes there's some things that are certain from reading them and from researching them. There's some things that are solid and you know hard to argue, but there's other things. There's other times when you feel like the papers are Sort of like the prophecies of Nostradamus, where <laughs> you could look at it and read them. You could, you know, pick and choose language and uh, parts of it to support just about any position you want to take. You know, again, I was yeah. talking about how 78 says the courts are going to be really important. 81 says, but don't let them be too important. Um, <laughs> just in the nine we've covered in detail so far, yeah. you know, uh, fairly recently we've had Hamilton talk about how uh, 
how great it is going to be in this strong federal government that yeah. it could suppress any local problems and override, you know, bad things that are happening in individual states. But then he turns around and says, but if it all goes bad, you can just leave um, and not get stuck with the federal government. You've got an escape clause. And, you know, he's, mm-hmm. sometimes you feel like he's trying to talk out both sides of his mouth. You know, there's certain mm-hmm. times where you feel like they want to, as we said before, have their cake and eat it too. And so yeah. it's important when you're reading the Federalist Papers nowadays, you know, especially within the last half century and whatnot, they get cited a lot more frequently in yeah. court opinions uh, and, and briefs and, you know, in politics as well. And pop culture. But Nicholas Cage, and pop, don't forget. <laughs> we're working on that. <laughs> But at the time they were written, they weren't being written as the Wikipedia article um, or the Wikipedia of the of the Constitution. It was being written as a persuasive document. And so, like a lot of persuasive documents, you often have to think to yourself, how much of this do we take at face value? How much of it was just trying to sell an idea and we need to take it with a grain of salt? Yeah. But yeah, I think you could say throughout for the, all of the Federalist Papers that you and to some degree, if you're clever, you can take you can manipulate the meaning a lot on almost any paper. Whatever's whatever is a controversy today, you can always there's a lot of papers you can find to speak about it. You know, the different papers seem to go up and down in popularity with whatever the issue today is. You know, yeah, the electoral college, you know, a hundred years ago probably wouldn't have made you know it wasn't really a controversial issue. So you would never talk about national headlines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then do you want to read, we got one more, I guess, comment. Do you want to throw that out there real quick? Yeah, sure. So our final comment was, uh, you know, Justin and I have been talking about in uh, one of the prior episodes that uh, episode six uh, we've had, had some sound issues with. And also uh, it was one paper by Hamilton where we spent a lot, had to spend a lot of time exploring very, uh, uh, spending a lot of time exploring real esoteric uh, and obscure facts of history to sort of explain what uh, – he was talking about, and I think both of us had a bit of a concern that we spent so much time uh, looking at the trees, and you know we didn't focus on the forest generally as much. What about what the general themes were? So you know we were talking about maybe going back and doing a amended or a redo version of episode six at some point. We, we haven't solidly decided that yet, but apparently one listener uh, thought we were being a little bit harsh of uh, our own episode or work there. Uh, the listener says, just finished episode seven, and I feel that your criticisms of episode six were a little harsh. It was actually interesting to hear about all of the obscure references and your opinions about whether those references were used accurately. My favorite parts of the podcast, other than the jokes, are when you analyze the strategy that the author is taking and whether it's successful. So, yeah, I appreciate that comment. We always appreciate feedback about what you liked and what you didn't like. Uh, yeah. And we'll definitely uh, take that into consideration. All right. Uh, okay, yeah, so I think that brings us to the end of the um, comments and questions we received so far uh, through uh, most, I think, primarily through the Facebook page. So thanks again to Carrie for putting all the hard work into that to get that up and going. Um, and then, Carrie, I think, did you have something welcome. you wanted to say? I was just, just going to echo what you said about, you know, thanking everyone for the, uh, the likes, the follows, the subscriptions, both on the Facebook page, on our website, uh, uh, you know, on our feed, and uh, in iTunes. Uh, and also, uh, again, if you have any uh, comments, questions, concerns, anything, feel free to submit them to us at the Facebook page. We also have a, a Gmail account that you can get to from our Podbean site, uh, but we don't check that as, as much, frankly. So we'll, you'll get a faster response uh, if you to submit the Facebook. Yeah. Facebook page. Yeah. And um, 
other than that, uh, just don't forget to like us on and follow us on on Facebook and whatever other social media that's out there that you're listening to uh, or or um, uh, podcast uh, methods that you use. Uh, if you do use iTunes, uh, please don't uh, follow us, but also please rate us if you can, uh, so we can get the the ratings up and uh, maybe get more people interested into it. Uh, leave a comment on there if you could as well; that'd be great. Um, and other than that, just uh, thanks for listening. We're going to be back uh, in a couple weeks here with uh, Feathers Number Ten. Madison enters the fold, um, apparently right at the time that Mr. J uh, falls ill, uh, as we've recently learned. So uh, Madison's up on deck, and he'll be back uh, with us next time on Feathers Number Ten. Um, and uh, Carrie, do you have anything else? No, we'll see everybody in Episode Ten. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. See you then. <laughs>